Isaiah chapter 28. I want to spend about four minutes this evening looking at how to study the Bible. You might know, I think up here in the northern woods, you have a lot of doctrinal issues. Does anyone recognize that out here in the audience, that there are doctrinal issues in the northern woods? I, I, I see at least a dozen hands. And what I'd really like to do in the first few minutes this evening is give you a couple principles about how you can land on the right side of doctrinal division around you where you are in your church. Isaiah 28, let's look at verse 9. Whom will he teach knowledge, and who will he make to understand doctrine? That's the question we want to know the answer to. How can you find out Uh, That is, who is God going to teach? If God teaches you, will you understand the truth? If God teaches you, you will. Who does God teach? Who is it that he makes to understand doctrine? It says, verse 9, those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. If we had a baby up here, an infant, and we laid that infant on the, the stage here and let her just stay there, say for a week or two without touching her, what would happen to her? Wouldn't she die? You know, babies are entirely dependent on someone to feed them and care for them. The baby Christians are too. And you can't fault a baby for being like that. But if you want the Lord God of heaven to teach you You can't be like that baby. You can't be someone that depends on someone else to teach you what is true. As long as you depend on someone else to teach you, you can never be certain that you'll end up on the right side of any issue of truth and error because it just really isn't so that the people that are on the right side are always the kindest and the people that are on the wrong side are always mean. It isn't true that those that are most studious and versed in the Bible are always on the right side, and those that are most new and naive are always on the wrong side. That isn't so either. You really can't land on the truth just by trying to find a middle ground or following the most apparently reliable person. Who is it that God teaches according to verse 9? It's those that are weaned those that are drawn, those who are learning to study for themselves. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Oh, excuse me, we have one more thing to observe here in Isaiah 29. It says in the next verse, for precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. There is a a fad in theological circles now, a fad to put down the kind of Bible study that, that Bible workers do. Have you ever heard the, someone use the word um, exegesis? And uh, what they mean by this word, or what I would mean if I use the word, would be to find something that's in the text, what the text says, and to pull out of the text what it says. Really, it's a great idea. It's better than the alternative, trying to put something into the text. But in promoting this idea of observing what the Bible says, many today are kind of 
speaking in a, der- in a derogatory way about comparing Scripture with Scripture, about taking here a little and there a little, as if by comparing one passage to another, you, you're going to run afoul of context or of common sense, and somehow this is not God's intention. But would you please notice in this passage, who does God teach knowledge? Why, it's those that take here a little and there a little. And if you want God to be your teacher, you can't just take your Bible and read. You're going to have to study Let me say that thought again. If you want God to teach you, it won't do for you just to open your Bible somewhere in the morning, read for a while, and close your Bible. You're going to have to do digging. You're going to have to compare. You're going to have to use a concordance. You're going to have to take some here and some there. If you want God to teach you, you're going to have to work. I think you'll see that makes a lot of sense. If we had here, let's say our little girl, we took care of her, and she grew to the point where she was about two. Now, I've never had a child, and I don't know enough about the stages of the life of a child to maybe get my illustration right, but uh, you can adjust it in your head and make it accurate. Maybe I'm just gonna say that she's only one year old. I think that'll be better for this illustration. She's one, and she does not know how to run she is really more comfortable on her knees and her hands. Would it be kindness to her if I just picked her up and just carried her around all the time so she wouldn't fall over? Would that be kind? It wouldn't be kind because it would prevent her from developing any strength. And without strength, she really wouldn't have any freedom. Without freedom, she really couldn't have a a valuable life or a useful life. I need to let her practice if she's going to develop any strength at all. I'm trying to illustrate for you why God doesn't just whisper to you in the morning and tell you the answer to all your perplexing questions. That's not how you would develop any strength. It's not how you would develop reasoning power. It's not how you would develop dependence. It's not how you would become a strong person. So who does God teach? Those that are weaned. And those that take here a little and there a little. Now turn to Daniel 12, verse 10. Daniel 12, verse 10. This verse has been very comforting to me. It helps me understand how people that are so studious could arrive at such foolish conclusions. Do you listen to Christian radio? Does anyone here listen to Christian radio? Not many hands went up, so maybe it's not a relevant illustration. But there are very apparently studious people. I remember hearing one man talk about when he went to study Revelation, his first step was to memorize the book. I've had a student to memorize the book Revelation, but I've only had one out of hundreds of students but I've had hundreds of students that know more about the book than he did. And I'm comforted to find some explanation, some way to understand how people can be studious for so long and yet never come to the truth. Let's read the verse. Daniel 12, 10. Many will be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked will do wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. Do you realize that Bible understanding is not a product of 
years in college. It's a product of a pure heart. How many of the wicked will understand according to Daniel 12.10? I hope I can just turn you off from this idea that a PhD person knows more about the Bible than someone else. Do you realize that when a Baptist who is a carpenter studies and becomes a PhD that he remains a Baptist? And when a Catholic who is a carpenter studies and get a PhD that he remains a a Catholic? And that when a Quaker gets his PhD, he remains a Quaker? The only exception is some of them will become atheist. But for the most part, when someone starts out as a Presbyterian and he studies, he remains a Presbyterian. What I'm trying to tell you is that that process of nine or 10 years of intense Bible study has done zero to bring these people closer to Bible truth. It has only made them more certain of whatever they already believed. Daniel 12.10 says, none of the wicked will understand. And that's the truth. So we're done with that part of the message tonight. Uh, I hope that was five minutes. I'm building a, I'm trying to build a foundation in the next four nights that would allow you to go away from here and really to end up on the right side of every doctrinal issue, even if there's no one around you to teach you the right thing. Turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. Jude, we're going to look at verse 5. I think before we do, I'll also tell you a story. Uh, My wife and I, this is Heidi over here, that's my wife, her name is Heidi Pruitt, If you have lived in this area for a long time, you might know another Heidi Pruitt. Does anyone else here know another Heidi Pruitt? That Heidi Pruitt is married to my first cousin, and she and Randy tell you hello, they love you, they miss you, and they told me to say that, and so it's it's done. So this is another Heidi Pruitt. Uh, Seven years ago, my wife and I began church planting in a city called Arkadelphia, It had 10,000 people and zero Seventh-day Adventist. At least we thought it had zero Seventh-day Adventist. We found out later it did have one, but he was unfaithful to his non-Adventist wife, and so I really don't think he counts. So I'm gonna say that there were zero, there's no place in Northern Idaho like that, is there? I mean, my experience in the Upper Columbia Conference is that I don't wanna say you have too many Seventh-day Adventists, but you have too many per capita. And really, some of you who, to get out of the cities, have moved out of the cities into the deep woods where there are lots of Adventists, if you really wanna be more useful for your life, you ought to move to rural Arkansas. It's just as pretty, cost of living is one half as much, and there aren't any Adventists. That's because in the 1880s, that, that, that's one of the states that was putting people in prison for keeping Sabbath. And so when people began to move west and to settle, you know where Adventists didn't settle? They didn't pick Arkansas. And so we, we have their large section, dark counties. And um, anyway, I'm not just being funny. I really am telling the truth. Some of you ought to move. Some of you, there are not enough neighbors to warrant you spending the rest of your life where you are and uh, you ought to go. 
Anyway, my wife and I, seven years ago, we began church planting this town with 10,000 people. We started from scratch, no money, no help, just a few students. How do you start from scratch in a church plant? This isn't like an upper Columbia church plant where like a bunch of members from one church go to another one. This is not at all like that. One thing we thought to do was to have at the county fair a booth and have a drawing. And uh, you know they're going to win something, right? Well, we put there, we advertised what they were going to win was a Conflict of the Ages series. Anyone who signs up for that is the kind of person you want to stay in contact with. Does that make sense to anyone what I just said? And so people signed up, and what they didn't realize is they were all going to win something. Um, We had an intention to make sure everyone got a piece of good literature. But Joanne won the the Conflict of the Ages series. Joanne, we drew her name, we came to her house, and Joanne was so excited. She said, I've never won anything before in my life. And we told her, Joanne, did you know that with this series of books that you have also won free in your home Bible studies with a Bible instructor at no cost? She couldn't believe it. And today she's a faithful member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Arkadelphia. Her daughter is traveling with the sanctuary from Oklahoma Academy, doing presentations with them. And, um, and I'll tell you more stories, maybe one or two each evening, because nothing we've done in Arkadelphia has worked wonders. Nothing that we've done has brought in 20 people, but almost everything we've tried has won someone. And two months ago, after seven years, we became a bona fide member, Bonner's Ferry, Bonafide. anyway, we became a bona fide member of the Seventh-day Adventist Sisterhood of Churches, and I'm just so glad that we've had a chance to be doing that work. Are you still in Jude? We're looking at verse five. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Have you thought about that? That the same people that God saved out of Egypt, and did he save them in a simple way or was it a miraculous complex way? Was it a miraculous way he saved them? The same class of people that he saved out of Egypt, what does verse 5 say he did to them? He destroyed the same people. And where did he do it? That verse is solemn. It makes me think. It makes me think that if God worked miracles to save me, that's not really proof or evidence that I'm going to make it. Can you see that in the verse? I see there's something else, and that is that Jude told people something that they already knew, and I want to tell you why. Jude, why are you telling us a story that we already know? And the answer is, that the truth affects you when you're thinking about it. When we're thinking about this story, while it has our attention, it creates a solemn feeling, a sense of insecurity that is healthy. When we're not thinking about the story, it doesn't have any impact on us at all. And that's the way truth is. It affects us when we think about it. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1, 
We're looking at verse, well, you're looking at the right verse and I'm not. 2 Peter 1, verse 13. Let's start in verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you once, though you knew, know them and be established in the present truth. Let me say that thought backwards. Suppose that you know something. Is Peter going to remind you of it? What does he say in verse 12? Is he reminding us of things we know or things we don't know? He says we know them. Is it because we're shaky or are we settled on these things? What does the verse say, verse 12? It says we're established, doesn't it? It says that we're established. It says that we're settled on these things. He says, I'm going to tell you again. Why, Peter, are you going to tell me something that I already know? Why something that I that I'm settled on. The truth is, it's because we need to hear it again. Truth affects us not when we know that it's true, it's when it has our attention. So you and I know that Jesus died for our sins. When I think about that, it softens my heart. When I'm not thinking about it, it really doesn't have an impact on my character. I believe that Jesus is coming back soon. When I'm talking about that and thinking about that, it has an impact on my character. When I'm not thinking about it, really, it's almost as if I don't believe it in, in terms of how it affects my life. Truth affects me when it has my attention. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Why, Paul, are you declaring the gospel if you preached it earlier? Which also you have received. So, Paul, you preached it and I accepted it. Then why are you telling me again? And wherein, it says in the end of verse 1, you stand. So Paul preached, they received it, they're standing in it just now, then why is he going to tell it to them again? Verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, otherwise you have believed in vain. That's what that unless means, otherwise. To say this in other words, my belief about the truth will not save me unless it keeps my attention. In the 1880s, uh, you, you know the names, I, I reckon most of you know the names, Jones and Wagner. Jones and Wagner were bringing a message about the gospel to us. It was precious, but many of those that were in the audience, and the audience wasn't a great deal larger than this audience here, many of those that were in that audience felt like there was nothing special in their message because they felt like they already knew it. Uriah Smith, if he was here and had that mentality, he might explain it like this. He might say that 
when he was in first grade, that's when he learned that Jesus died for his sins. In second grade, he learned that he could be forgiven because of that. In third grade, he learned that salvation is free. But now he's been learning about Revelation 17, the whore and that golden cup, the mysteries, 666. Really, he learned those things already, and now he's advanced to more you know, deep things. But that's not the way truth works. You never get past those first things. It's more like pedaling a bicycle than building one. As soon as you stop thinking about the gospel, you stop going forward. When you stop considering the simple truths, you stop making progress. And you could, in fact, in your life, be more distant from God in your old age than you were in your teen years for no reason other than this, that in your teen years you were considering what Jesus did for you, and in your older years you thought you had already dealt with that. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 4. We're looking at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, Today my wife and I were at the game reserve that's just east of Bonner's Ferry. It's a beautiful place. And I saw some hummingbirds there. Hummingbirds are proof to me that the devil has his hands tied. If the devil was free to do what he would, he would have killed the hummingbirds. You know, they're fragile, they're weak. He could catch them. But God doesn't let him do that. It makes no sense for you to be afraid of the devil hurting you. If the devil could hurt you, he would have already done it. This is why there's no reason ever to be afraid of a haunted house. It doesn't make any sense at all for you to be afraid of someone bringing an amulet into your home and demons being there because of it. The devil doesn't need an amulet to be in your home. And if he had the right to hurt you, he wouldn't wait for an opportunity to do it. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is the devil flees when you resist him. Do you see that in the verse? Whenever I I watch birds, and when I'm watching birds and I see a little bird and a big bird and they're having a bad relationship, who's chasing who? Isn't, Isn't it always the little bird chasing the big bird? That's how it always is when I'm watching. I'm just trying to illustrate something for you. When you see that, I'd like you to realize that you're little and the devil's bigger than you, But when you resist him, what is he going to do? He's going to flee from you. Then verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The last part of that verse. The idea of drawing nigh to God is so precious. Is that verse 8? Let me look and then that's what I get for not looking. Yeah, verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will 
draw nigh to you. James 4, 8. Do you realize that there's not a limit to this idea? However close you want to get to God is how close you can get to him. I guess want is the wrong word, but you can be as close to God as you will. John was closer to Jesus than James or Peter. Why was John closer? It wasn't because Jesus played favorites. It was because John pressed closer to Jesus. And if you draw near to God, what will he do? He'll draw near to you. So no one here is a standard for how close you can be to God. Children, you can be closer than your parents. Parents, you can be closer than your parents. New Adventists, you can be closer than your pastors. Pastors, you can be closer than your conference presidents. Students, you can be closer than your teachers. And if you're a teacher or a conference president or a pastor or a parent, I'm not saying anything about you at all. You can be closer than your children and your parishioners and whoever else. What I'm trying to say is we, there are, there's no limit to how close you can be to God. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But you draw near to God by resisting the devil, by cleansing your hands, by submitting yourself. Frequently, people are closer to God in their youth than they are in older years because in their youth, they're studying and learning and sharing. In their older years, they develop more and more responsibilities. They're doing more sharing, doing more work, but they're doing less studying, less drawing near. And I'm not saying that God despises them or casts them off or doesn't like them or anything like that, but how close you are to God has everything to do with how close you draw to him. And the closer you draw, the closer you will be. And it really isn't true that you will get more done by doing more if it's at the expense of drawing near. I made a list of thoughts I wanna share with you tonight, and I know I won't get done with it, but there's a few I wanna make sure I get to. The theme for this conference is an enduring faith. Is that what it says? Faith that endures. Faith that endures is not emotion dependent. I don't think I even have to prove that to you. I think you can just sort of see that from your own experience. Can you see that from your experience that if your faith was emotion dependent, it would not endure? Religion that is emotion dependent is not enduring. This is why I have little appreciation for very emotional altar calls. I don't say zero appreciation because you can make a very heartfelt, calm, and solemn commitment in the most emotional altar call. But emotion-dependent religion just doesn't endure well. And don't we want a religion that endures well? He that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now follow the step, this next step. Religious excitement is not faith, it is an emotion. 
What I'm trying to get at here is an idea for you to think about that fanaticism, maybe you don't recognize it as fanaticism. Fanaticism doesn't wear a, uh, like a, um, a headband that says fanaticism. But I'd like you to recognize some element about it. Fanaticism at its core is emotion-dependent religion. What it is, is excitement. It's religious excitement. And when we are religiously excited, our minds do not work the most efficiently. They work the least efficiently. Let me just read you a statement. This is from Evangelism, page 170, for those who take notes and then read things later. It is not excitement we wish to create, but deep, earnest consideration that those who hear shall do solid work, real, sound, genuine work that will be as enduring as eternity. We hunger not for excitement, for the sensational, The less we have of this, the better. The calm, earnest reasoning from the scriptures is precious and fruitful. I love reading about William Miller. William Miller was able to hold large audiences. He was able to keep them captivated with Bible teaching. And because of his reputation for holding large audiences, Newspaper reporters thought they knew something about him before they even went to hear him. They thought he must have an emotion-driven religion. Why did they conclude that? Because he was able to hold audiences. But they were shocked when they would arrive. William Miller was not an emotional speaker. He was earnest, he was thoughtful, he was thought-provoking, and some skeptics even said that if you accepted his presuppositions, you really could not avoid reaching his conclusions. But what worked for William Miller was calm, earnest reasoning from the Scriptures. It was not undue excitement or sensationalism, the less we have of this, the the better is what the statement says. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to look at a verse that is little read because it starts out in a way that we're a little inclined to read. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. That just really isn't what we're getting at, but we have to read through it to get to the rest. You see the end of verse 6? But faith which works by love. If you're an English major, you could make a whole sentence out of that. The verb would be works or avails. What avails? Faith that works by love avails much. 
Faith that works by love avails. Faith works by what? Love. Truth works by love. Faith works by love. And the idea that I'm trying to develop in your mind, just putting some pieces together, is that what you know about love is true about faith and truth. I don't think that made any sense to you at all, but it will in a moment, I think. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we're looking at verse 4. Faith works by love, and this chapter is about love. So faith works by what we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Can you follow me that far? Faith works by love. Verse 4, charity suffers long and is kind. Do you see that there's a semicolon after kind and a comma after long? I mean, if you have a King James Bible. I want you to understand why. There is nothing particularly loving or charitable about suffering long. You can suffer long, and all you have to do to suffer long is be in a long-suffering situation. I mean, a situation that is long and that causes you to suffer. Suffering long is not a virtue. But when you put it together, to suffer long and be, what's the word? Kind, that's the virtue. Charity suffers long and is kind. That is, charity puts up not just with a slight or an insult or a rebuff, but charity puts up with those things over a long period. And what does charity remain? Charity remains kind. Fanaticism isn't like that. Typically, fanaticism isn't like that at all. What I'm saying is that faith works by love, and faith then can afford to be charitable. Faith is. When you're living by faith, you can put up with contradiction, continuous contradiction. You can endure the contradiction of sinners against yourself. My interaction with fanatics has helped me see that in many cases, fanatics do not well put up with the contradiction of sinners against themselves. Verse five. Oh, there's more in verse four. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. You know we have three angels' messages that are to go to the world. I think that I'm not gonna preach about, or not gonna preach those messages uh, during these four days that I'm with you. But I would like you to uh, make sure you hear preaching about them as often as you can. When does truth affect us? It's when it has our attention. Speaking of that, do you know the website Audioverse? 15 heads were nodding and 40 heads were still. You, you ought to find the nodding head that was nearest you and ask about it. Audioverse.org is a website of thoroughly vetted Bible teaching, free MP3 sermons. If you don't know what an MP3 is, your children do. And uh, it's, it's what you can put on CDs and you can listen to it. MP3 sermons. 
good, solid Bible teaching, the very kind you want today, but you probably get a lot of it in the northern woods and so you probably ought to move <laughs> so you can share what you've learned. I'm not making this up. Have you read about Jerusalem centers? So you know there's a Jerusalem center at Walla Walla, there's a Jerusalem center at College Dale, there's a Jerusalem center at College Place, and those are Loma Linda and La Sierra, those are liberal Jerusalem centers. You don't feel like you have one up here because there's so many trees, but you, you have a very similar scenario. I'm done with that topic, I think. I did distract myself, and I'm not sure where I was going. Did I tell you where to go? I don't mean Arkansas. I mean where in the Bible. Oh, turn your Bibles to Hebrew. Oh, we're still in 1 Corinthians 13. We're not done here. So it's this idea of vaunting not itself. Fanaticism lifts itself up as being the key, the message for this time. I don't mean that there is no message for this time. There is a message for this time. It is the three angels' messages. It would be, for example, that the gospel should go to the whole world, the everlasting gospel, to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. It would include the fact that the judgment is here, that we should keep the Sabbath now, we should live in a way that glorifies God, that Babylon has fallen, even though Babylon has so many friendly, warm, and, and Bible-loving people in it, Babylon truly is fallen. It's fallen twice, and there is a danger in accepting the mark of the beast and, and receiving. You, you know the three angels' messages. There's a righteousness by faith message in that third one. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That's the message for this time. Satan hates a timely message. He is afraid of the power of a timely message, and he can't really reduce the power of a timely message unless he finds something else for you to think about. So for people who are dead and cold, it is television and or YouTube and or, well, something, something to distract you and keep you busy. The devil doesn't need it to even be false. He just needs it to be something other than your message. But what if you love devotional ideas, you love to read the Bible, you love the spirit of prophecy, what if you're more studious than even the Sabbath school teachers in your church? How is the devil going to keep you off target? He really probably can't do it with television. For you, it's fanaticism. That's what he uses for you. And, to, and what is he aiming for? It's to get you off of the message that is for this time. Now, every fanaticism I know about claims to be part of the three angels' messages. So let me just give you one more illustration, a simple idea. The Bible says that the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. That's not a hard verse to understand. Who does the Lord love in that verse? A cheerful giver. The Lord loves it when you give cheerfully. 
That's what the Bible says. Now I can take that verse and I can try to extrapolate some ideas that it doesn't say, but seem to me to be kind of built into what it does say. If the Lord loves a cheerful giver, the Lord must not love a grudging giver. The Lord does not love grudging givers. The Lord does not love non-givers. Have you ever read a verse like that in the Bible? You know, it doesn't say that at all. And in fact, those are both falsehoods. But you see how just trying to use the tools of rhetoric, I might try to get those ideas out of the statement that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You can see it easily there because we all know that God loves even non-givers. But take that same principle somewhere else where you're not in familiar territory and you don't get it at all. You need to begin to make in your mind a sincere distinction between what the prophets say and what people extract and pull out of what they say. For example, the prophets say some very valuable things. Ellen White says some very valuable things about the end of time. What she says about the end of time is all true. But there are some extractions that people try to make, things that she never did say, and you can see how with the rules of rhetoric and logic, you might be able to get that out of there, but listen, if you use the rules of rhetoric and logic, maybe it doesn't, maybe, I don't know if you're following what I'm trying to tell you. If the prophet didn't say it, it's not the same quality of idea as if the prophet did say it. And the things that are most central and most important Do you know what they all have in common? God said them. God made the truth simple. There are a number of teachers in North America today teaching ideas, and the reason that audiences believe them is because they quote so much, they give so much data, and it's so complex, they figure they must know what they're talking about. but I don't know any successful fanatic who doesn't have 100 pages worth of material. I mean, I'm so tempted to like launch into a bunch of examples. Here's one I think you don't have a lot of in the North Woods, the shepherd's rod. You don't have a lot of that up here, do you? That's much more Caribbean and Canadian. You do have some up here? You have everything then. But, but listen, Victor Hutef was a Sabbath school teacher. And he used a lot of Bible and a lot of testimony, a bunch of it. And he wasn't the first one when Elmite was alive. Some of the men in her own lifetime, like the man who in the 1890s was teaching that the church is Babylon, That man was not an ignoramus. He put together large compilations of well thought through logical material. If I believed every well thought out logical presentation from the Bible and the testimonies that has come across my desk, if I believed them all, I would have schizophrenia already because I would be a lunar Sabbatarian 
and I would keep the seventh day Saturday Sabbath. I would be a feast day keeper, and I would not be. I would believe that there are three beings in the Godhead, that there are two beings in the Godhead, that there is one being in the Godhead. I would believe that Victor Hutef was a prophet and that he was not. I would believe that the 144,000 were a literal number and that it was a symbolic number, even though no prophet ever said anything related to either one of those two things. Except one thing. Maybe I can share with you a statement you don't know. Do you have like computers and little uh, smartphones that like have all kinds of statements on them? You can just look them up. This is for the younger generation. If you would just do a little search on the Ellen White CD-ROM for these words, prying, P-R-Y-I-N-G, questions. Prying, questions. You would pull up the most interesting statement. It would give an example of questions that are bad questions, and one of them would be the question, how many will be sealed? Now, do you know what Revelation calls those that are sealed? The 144,000. So let me tell you what one prime question would be. How many are going to be in the 144,000? Anyway, you can look the statement up. You don't have to trust me. What I'm trying to tell you is that if you believe every conglomeration of inspired material that comes your way, you can believe every paragraph in it, but if you believe the conclusions of those who bring it to you, you are going to be like a wind, like a wave of the sea. You're going to be driven by the wind and tossed. So faith that endures is a faith that works by love. It doesn't vaunt itself. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't think evil of others any more than it absolutely must. And really, fanaticism tends to be just the opposite of all these things. Can anyone see this in their own experience of their life? At least a few. I mentioned Jones and Wagner earlier. In 1888, one of the issues was the law in Galatians. What's the issue of the law in Galatians? Galatians 3 says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That verse, no problem. What really got to Adventist is what comes after that, and that is that we're no longer under a schoolmaster. If the law was our schoolmaster and we're no longer under a schoolmaster, we're no longer under the law. And when Adventists would be trying to make way, headway against superstition and foolishness, you know this Galatians 3 was going to come up in almost every situation. But our evangelists learned how to handle this passage. We were professional. We knew it better than our opponents did. They would bring it up, and we would just give our eight proofs that there were two laws, one that was ceremonial, one that was moral, one that's spiritual, one that's carnal, one in the ark, one beside the ark. You know, we know the whole thing, right? And so we give our list, and we say, this is the law that was carnal, the ceremonial law. 
Jones and Wagner came to a different conclusion because when they read Galatians 3, they saw that the law isn't taken away at the cross, it's taken away when faith comes. And that doesn't sound like the ceremonial law. You don't like kill lambs until you have faith. You understand where they're coming from? And so they began developing this idea. They concluded that this law is the Ten Commandments and that to not be under it means not to be under its condemnation. I don't even want to like delve any deeper into this, but can you at least see where both sides are coming from in this little controversy? The the, the one side felt like to say that that's the Ten Commandments is to just open ourselves up to the enemy of truth and righteousness. It leads to antinomianism. It's gonna undermine the pillars of our faith. On the other hand, Jones and Wagner were saying, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't. We still believe in all the rest of that, but we can teach something better about this. We can be, Ellen White, in 1888, was listening to a discussion about this issue. I'm not even gonna tell you what she eventually believed, but I wanna read you something she said about the discussion. She was listening to the men who were on this first side, the ones who were arguing that it's the ceremonial law. She says, for the first time, I began to think it might be we did not hold correct views, after all, upon the law in Galatians. For the truth required no such spirit to sustain it. Isn't that interesting? That's not a prophet telling you the truth about Galatians 3. This is a Christian woman with some experience in the things of God telling you that she began to wonder if she might be on the wrong side of a theological issue because of the attitude of those that were advocating the position. Truth works by love. And faith works by love. And you can take this idea too far you could conclude that anyone who was mean-spirited was on the wrong side. Didn't I tell you right at the beginning that I don't believe that way? If you want to be taught by God, you're going to have to study for yourself. But I want you to be able to recognize that if a man with a mean spirit is teaching the truth, shame on him. You can't look at that man as a spiritual leader even if he is telling the truth because that man doesn't have the spirit. I only have one more thing I wanna tell you tonight, then we'll review and we'll be done. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse nine. Be not carried away about, excuse me, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Do you know that there are such things as strange and diverse doctrines? Do you see that to obey this verse, you actually have to be able to identify strange and diverse doctrines. In other words, the verse says, don't be carried about with them, and how can you avoid being carried about with them unless you know which ones they are? 
So we could develop this a lot more, but there is a couple of hints right in the verse about what diverse and strange doctrines are. One thing, these are doctrines that don't make saints out of the ones who are most active with them. They don't make them into pure, loving, sweet people. The heart ought to be occupied with grace and not with meats. What kind of meats? Ones that haven't helped the people that are busy with them. Do you see that in the verse? So a little bit of church history to go with this verse. The devil wants to create bitter feelings and spirit among us. He's really aiming at this. He aims hard at this. He doesn't prefer to start an argument among us about something that is plainly stated by prophets. If he starts an argument about something that is plainly stated, then it'll be the believers versus the unbelievers. And that has never been the very best argument for the devil. He prefers to start an argument about something that could be understood one of two ways. Something that is not stated the most clearly something that's not the most well-developed in inspiration. If you can start an argument on something that's a side issue, then we have no way to resolve our difference of opinion on a thus saith the Lord. We can't really do it. So something the devil learned about very early on was to start arguments about the Godhead. By the second century, the church was full of them. If you ever get A.T. Jones's The Two Republics, that big gray thick book that looks like it should have been two or three books, you can find in there transcripts of many second, third, and fourth, and fifth century religious discussions about this issue, and it's just embarrassing. The church was arguing about things that were so minute, so on the edge that they didn't even really understand what they were saying. There was one king who was just listening to one of the arguments and the two words they were discussing were both had many letters in Latin like they do when you transliterate them and the difference in spelling was one U, like U-O-U or U-O, truly I'm bad at spelling in English so I'm not gonna try to make a defense of a Latin issue, but it was just one letter And the king, trying not to seem unintelligent, he asked one of the leading men to please explain in simple terms the difference between the two words. And the man said he wasn't able to do it. What I'm trying to tell you is that for a long time, Satan has got a lot of material out of the issue of the Godhead because there's not a single chapter in the entire Bible written for the purpose of explaining the Godhead to us. There isn't one. And for that very reason, if the devil makes an argument on this issue, he can get more heat and more bad character and more bad attitude out of it than he could if he tried to discuss something that is much more thoroughly revealed. For example, the divinity of Christ is thoroughly revealed. The sonship of Christ is thoroughly revealed. The Agency and work of the Holy Spirit is thoroughly revealed. But as soon as we delve into issues of substance and personality 
and numbers and essence, we have just gone outside of the realm of revelation. And now we have no way to resolve our differences. So what does Hebrews 13 say about it? Don't be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. That would be that kind. Let's review the thoughts we've looked at tonight. The first thought was that truth can, I didn't say this whole idea, but I will now, truth can sanctify the soul. Truth is what sanctifies us, but it doesn't sanctify a large percentage of those that know it. When Jesus said, sanctify them through your truth, he was speaking of us, but it just doesn't happen to most because learning truth is not the active ingredient in making it work. Truth acts in my life, not when I admit that it's so, but when I'm thinking about it. It's when it has my attention, when I'm meditating on it, truth, in fact, is quiet and still and easily ignored. And we need to give it our attention. I need to choose to think about the judgment, choose to think about the second coming, choose to think about the flood. When I choose to think about the three angels' messages, when I give my attention to the things that deserve my attention, they will sanctify my life. But if I give my attention to distractions, sincerely held, earnestly believed falsehood fails to sanctify the soul. And where truth and faith are not working by love, there you have a development of a character that shows that the doctrines are not profiting those that are carried about with them a mean spirit. Maybe the devil, I even know a couple fanatics who are kind and sweet. So I don't mean to say that the devil doesn't have ministers that seem like angels of light. But I do mean to say that where you see the bad spirit, there you're seeing someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And what if you wanna end up on the right side of every issue? You know, it's not just by the hours you spend reading. It's not even by just reading someone else's study to see if it makes sense all the way through. Truly, they almost all do, to some extent or another. But if you want to be taught of God, none of the wicked will understand. We're going to have to put away our sins. We're going to have to learn to study for ourselves and not be dependent on some, even some good man to be our instructor. There's nothing wrong with a baby being dependent on you, and there's nothing wrong with you as a baby Christian being dependent on some good man that you know, but it's not safe. And if you want to be taught by God, you're going to have to grow up out of that. You're going to have to be weaned. And then you're going to have to study and take here a little and there a little. And if we will do these things, God will find a way to reach us. And that one other precious thought, how close can we be to God? As close as we choose to be. Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
I thank you for the promise that the wise will understand. That they that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. And I ask that you would pardon us for how little we've worked to turn people to righteousness. For how little we've done to spread the message that is central for this time. Please pardon us for being less zealous for the truth than fanatics are for error. And teach us, remind us of how precious it was to draw near to you when we were nearest to you. Bring us back to that again. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.